Blog Talk Radio. It's 2014, Happy New Year, and oh my God, we've got so much to talk about. Benghazi, Jessica Yellen, we've got gay marriage in Utah, no we don't. Oh, we've got Dennis Rodman in North Korea, we've got job numbers, we've got economy, we've got all kinds of stuff. Oh my God, it's backroom politics! Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is 2014. It is a new year here in Washington, D.C. That means it's Tuesday, and that means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As they do every Tuesday for the past three years, to my left, he is the former congressman representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Happy New Year. Hello, and I'm glad you've taken a tranquilizer since the opening of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Al. Uh, Joining me to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin, and a happy new year to you, sir. Happy new year to you, too. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former... House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Betty Thompson, former Obama appointee and general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krupp. Happy New Year, Denise. Happy New Year, Justin. And to my one o'clock, he is the former longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce who served that last count under four presidents. He's a very distinguished and very handsome fellow for the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And to my right, ironically, he is the former chairman our former executive director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is longtime Washington Insider. Carl Tuvin, Happy New Year to you, Carl. Happy New Year to you, Justin. Happy New Year to all of our listeners in Radio Land. Yeah, that's right. Wow, it's 2014. We've been gone for two weeks, and I know you've missed us, but we have got so much to talk about. Just even stuff that's happening today, we could have a full show, but we got two weeks of stuff that we've got to cover. Well, I'm going to put it out to the floor. Guys, we can talk about anything from Dennis Rodman, to uh, we can talk about the unemployment claims bill that got passed by the Senate today. We can talk about Jessica Yellen. We can talk about Benghazi. We can talk about uh, MSNBC falling off the rails. We can talk about gay marriage in Utah or the Supreme Court intervention in that little debacle. You guys pick it. What do you want to start with first? Because they're all relevant. Bob, your call. I'd like to talk about Dennis Rodman. Oh, right. There he's we go. An, he's an idiot. That's all there is to say. Well, then we've covered that. <laughs> I know, actually, Dennis, Dennis Rodman had an interview today with Chris Cuomo from CNN and is in North Korea with 10 former NBA players, a good chunk of them from the New York Knicks, ironically, another crazy organization. And the, uh, they had an interview, and they're going to play his basketball game, according to Dennis Rodman and press coming out of Yang. 
that this is a celebration of the great leader's birthday. It's his 31st birthday, and apparently he wants to have a basketball game in his honor. Well, during an interview with Chris Cuomo, he uh, basically came off the rails. I don't know. Did you guys see this? I saw it this morning, and I thought it was just absolutely hysterical. But my question is, you know, with everything going on, why does the U.S. government continue to allow him to go to North Korea and actually get media coverage on this? Can anybody answer that for me? I think maybe we're hoping he'll stay there. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be awesome. But this guy started talking about... now. For those who don't know, there is an American currently being held in North Korea. He has not been charged with any crime. He is just being held and retained now for three years. His family's been trying to get, the State Department's been trying to get access to get him out of there. But when, when, um, when he was asked, Dennis Rodman responded like a maniac saying, you don't know what this gentleman did. You don't know what he did in this country. And Alan Moore, you know, he's now inserted himself in almost a cartoonish way into something that is a very delicate diplomatic situation for all players involved right now. This has got to be awkward. Awkward, maybe a little. You know, who cares? Who cares what Dennis, Dennis Rodman does or thinks? I don't mind that he travels there. There are Americans that go there. Uh, they go there at some risk. Um, but but uh, we've, we've got some amount of humanitarian assistance that goes on in North Korea, so I don't think that the government has, has any business keeping, keeping him out of there. It's, it's more embarrassing to him than to the country. It's just a sideshow, and I don't pay a lot of attention. I do pay attention, but not with any significant global import. Denise I think, well, Congressman Al first ended I think his primary purpose is to make uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and uh, Governor Bill Richardson look better than they would otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ironically, ironically, David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, has come out publicly and denounced the fact that Dennis Rodman continues to go to North Korea, but has denounced the 10 players that have gone with Dennis Rodman to this as, as being basically un-American and putting any diplomatic efforts to deal with North Korea, uh, not only on edge, but that delicate situation comes worse with them empowering Kim Jong-il as, or Kim Jong-un as the leader, uh, or the legitimate leader of North Korea, and his oppressive government gives that legitimacy. Am I wrong, Bob? No, I don't think you're wrong. What I, what I think, let me put it this way, you know, I think Rodman is just you know, a silly person. But I would like to see him say, in effect, to the super leader over there, hey, how about, how about this American, you know, how about freeing him? He's been here for three years. You haven't, done a dark, you haven't cited him for any criminal activity. You haven't done anything. You're just holding him. Why don't you let him go? Now, if he do something like that, I'd find myself feeling a lot more positive toward the gentleman from uh, Chicago. Denise. Well, my question is, how do we know he hasn't done that? I mean, we, we employed some rather unusual diplomacy during the uh, Soviet era when we were sending musicians over to uh, former Soviet Union and the former East Bloc countries, and we, we sent them over there because we wanted people to see Americans. I'm not saying that a musician is on the same level as Dennis Rodman, but it is an unusual way to keep the door open. What, Carl Tubin? Well, <clears throat> first of all, Dennis Rodman was a pretty good basketball player. <clears throat> he was on that team with um, Jordan. 
Jordan, Jordan. and all the championships. Uh, uh, he's had, I'm sure, I know a lot of reversals. And I think the only reason why he's doing this is money. And uh, hopefully he's getting paid in uh, American dollars and not uh, North Korean dollars. But, but, but again, though, you're, you're talking about, there's no question, Bob, that sports can be used as an outlier. Denise, using cultural or, or athletic events to help spread goodwill, that's been done for years by this country. Even with some of our staunchest adversaries, we look at Cuba, you know, and, and Arturo Sandoval and, and, and the interchange that we had before he defected. But you look at Dizzy Gillespie going to Cuba and performing down there. No question. But there's a difference between, it's almost like ugly self-promotion versus spreading goodwill. And I'm not sure Dennis Rodman's a right goodwill ambassador to spread the greatness of America. This guy's got more holes in him than Swiss cheese. And on top of the fact, he's about as politically relevant as the cigar ashtray. So how do we how do we justify him being relevant in spreading American goodwill? Al, I don't think we can. You compare him with some of the people that we said the State Department said, <clears throat> Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. uh, a great American, and and there's a recording out of one of the concerts that he had. Dave Brubeck was there. Carmen McRae was there. Uh, the Hilos were were, were there. And uh, it was a very pro-American, very, it was the right thing to do, to, to display the United States in as good a way as, as it was possible. Rodman, if, if he represents America, then he, he's making us all look like idiots. And uh, I don't think that's uh, beneficial. I, I think we're way, way, way overplaying this. <laughs> I don't. I don't worry that Dennis, Dennis Rodman's going to make me or America look bad. He's an oddball. He's got a team of basketball players now, which is different than his prior trip. They're going to go over. They're going to play some basketball. Denise talked about sort of sports being a measure of goodwill and exposure to another society. He obviously doesn't know anything about the politics of what's going on or this particular person who's being held. He should keep his mouth shut on that, but he's a free play, free actor, a free player. Nobody, but nobody thinks he's speaking for America. The people that Al talks about were sponsored by the U.S. government as as goodwill ambassadors. He's a he's a free agent. He's over there. It's it's a sideshow that I see more as a source of amusement than embarrassment to America. Well, I have to agree with, with Alan in this respect. I think we've already spent too much time talking about Yeah, it. I'm about to shut this down. I'm about to shut this down. Well, uh, you know, to, to the players that are with Dennis Rodman, have a great game. But Dennis Rodman, please do us all a favor. Just shut the hell up, please. That's enough about Dennis Rodman. Let, let's go on to some, uh, some bigger issues right now. Um, you, you know, what we did see uh, over the holidays during the break was Jessica Yellen, uh, late last week was confirmed by the Senate to be the new chairman of yesterday the, morning or yesterday morning but final confirmation came yesterday morning by uh, to be the new chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Bank a uh, lot of lot of a lot of buzz surrounding Jessica Yellen but a lot of people in the financial industry look at her as being Ben Bernanke 2.0 just in a female voice 
Is that is that fair to Jessica Yellen Allen Moore? I I always bristle at the notion that any person is going to be a carbon copy of somebody that he or she previously worked for or with or in association with. She's got her own independent story and history. She appears to be sympathetic in in point of view to the views that, that Bernanke and the current Fed had, but we don't know what Bernanke would do a year from now, and we don't know what Yellen will do a year from now, except that we know that they were both thoughtful economists with, with credible records who uh, take their responsibilities very seriously. The controversy about her doesn't have to do with her. It has to do with the whole question of the role of the Fed and whether there should be additional oversight and safeguards. And i got to apologize. I said Jessica Yellen. Jessica Yellen is a correspondent with CNN. I meant to say Janet Yellen. I apologize. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, but, you know, when you, when you talk about uh, Janet Yellen, the one thing that we've heard positive about Janet Yellen and her nominee, nomination and now assumption of the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Congressman Al, is that she seems to have her finger on the the pulse of the everyday economy as opposed to just being book smart about the economy. Why is that important? And why should the American and why should the American electorate care? Well, first of all, uh, that's just one of the good things we've heard about her. You know, there was some criticism, but there was also a lot of praise for her as a nominee. Uh, you ask, why is it important that we worry about the little people in this country? My Lord. Uh, I think that this could be the what the next presidential election is fought over, that very point. Uh, we have got... Uh, it's very interesting. <clears throat> if you go back and do a little bit on the history of Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, they both were very upset about a growing division between them that has and them that has not, and they set about shaking up this country economically in a way that uh, would today be called communistic, uh, which is an exaggeration, but the people that would oppose would, would use that term. It certainly was, is liberal. Uh, what they did, and we are, as a country, kind of back in the situation we were in in their days, and uh, very frankly, uh, I'll vote for Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, anytime he comes along. But Alan Moore? Um, yeah, I, I, I feel a need to say something about being back where we were. Today, I would say that those who wanted more to be done for the middle class and the lower middle class have scored massive victories since that period. We spend right now per year in the neighborhood of $750 billion to provide income and other financial support to the poor. We spend hundreds of billions more in the Social Security and Medicare in ways that are redistributive. We, you get more benefits the less you put in to those programs. So we are doing an, 
an enormous amount. And I think we can't ever lose sight of that. Are we doing it the right way? Are we doing enough? How do we pay for all of those things? Those are big, important questions. But, but Janet Yellen, during her nomination for, when, when the president introduced her as a nominee for chairwoman, she said, and I'm going to read the quote from her, uh, from her announcement, too many Americans still can't find a job and worry how they'll pay their bills and provide for their families. The Federal Reserve can help if it does its job effectively. Denise, that sounds like a pipe dream considering the fact that we've got a fragile economy with banks that are literally hoarding cash that they refuse to lend out and still paying rock, rock, rocket sky high uh, bonuses to their executive corps. Well, I'm going to go back to what Congressman Al was talking about. The next election is going to be about those who do not have a lot of money. I mean, I, I, you know, over the holidays, I, I talked to several of my friends who had lost their jobs. They're struggling. I mean, they've gone six months without uh, having a salary. And, and one of the joys of being unemployed is that you get COBRA. Well, COBRA provides you with support, but that's assuming you can pay COBRA because yeah. COBRA is based off of your last salary. So if you had a higher salary, then you've got a higher rate for COBRA, so you've got a lot more money to pay for for your insurance. But can you pay for your insurance while you're still trying to put food on the table for your children? So if Janet Yellen is saying, you know, the Federal Reserve can help us, God bless you, lady, because we're going to need as much help as we can to get these men and women back on the job. But you've got, but you've got the Senate. You got the Senate who passed the uh, unemployment benefits. Not true. Not true. No. Why are you saying no. not true? They didn't pass it. What did they do? They agreed to debate it. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Remember, I, I, I apologize. Remember, there's I two apologize. steps. Two steps. Two steps. Yeah. My read was today that they voted to send it to the House. No, no, no. no, no. So they only voted cloture on it. They agreed to debate it, and they may or may not pass it. And they got the 60 votes, which they were having trouble which, with, Well, there were some key... We'll, we'll talk about that in another segment, because that's still... No, 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 it's a big issue. It's, it's a big issue. We're going to talk about today, that in a second, but when, when right you've got that now on the plate, particularly in the Senate, and you've got the situation in the House where this is literally a coin toss if they can even remotely get any sort of Republican support for this bill. This is Janet Yellen saying, hey, you know, if you're unemployed, let the Fed Reserve Bank handle. That doesn't sing a lot of optimism to Wall Street, though. Alan Moore, you're shaking your head. That's not what she's saying. She's saying if we do our job right, if we'll she, find jobs we, for you. If we... That's <laughs> not... If we do our job right in controlling money supply and interest rates, then the economy can respond and grow and, and bring in more good-paying jobs. That's what the Fed can do. That's all the Fed can do. But that and doesn't send a real strong message to Wall Street, which is, hey, that's... Hey. No, what that message is, is we're going to we're not going to make abrupt changes to the the monetary policy that we've seen in recent years of super low interest rates that's that's what they do and that's all they can do is the fact that she is going to continue quantitative easing uh, and loose monetary policy is that a is that a positive is that a help for wall street congressman now 
I was just looking at somebody who was staring through the window at us, and I was wondering what he was. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with me, Al. Stay I, with I, me. I, I was afraid he was going to. It's not a he. That, 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 yeah, that, that's definitely not a he, Al. Uh, there yeah. Jeez. We're live on the air, kids. Back, back. Come back to me, kids. Come back to me. Back here. You scared me. Bob, Bob, I want to take that. Con- I want to take the conversation away from Al. I want to give it to you. I even forget my point. I mean, does the fact, does the you fact, forget your point? I forgot that. I does the fact that it. she's going to support loose monetary policy, the fact that we're still on the air, Denise, does the fact that Janet Yellen is still talking about supporting Ben Bernanke's quantitative easing, loose monetary and interest policies, does that send a message to Wall Street that will get them confident and on board to maybe loosen up some of the hoarded money that they've got? Well, the policies that the, that the Fed's been following for some time seem to have been relatively successful. I see no reason why we should say we're going to change it. I think, I think it's fine the way it's going. Personally, I think that they're doing a pretty damn good job. But Alan Moore, we're talking about, you know, we're hearing some of the conservative financial pundits talking about that this is starting to balloon. We're not seeing normal inflation. We're not seeing normal interest rates, that this is just a false sense of security. You know, we're in a world we've never seen before. And and the less you rock the boat, uh, arguably, uh, the less trouble or unintended consequences you're likely to run into. The banks (coughs) have tightened their lending policies because they have been ordered to by the federal government. So let's not, let's, let's not just say, oh, if only these banks would lend more money. They like to lend money because you make money when you lend money, but they've got a lot of restrictions on them um, that, that, that simply didn't exist before. So it's harder to borrow money. Corporations are sitting on the big cash. It's not the banks that are. It's the corporations who are sitting on the big cash. They would love to invest money. They don't see the demand side of the economy in a position that causes them to want to invest more, to produce more, because they don't see the market for it. They are super, super cautious in what they're doing, and the costs of labor are continuing to rise, not least of all because of Obamacare. Um, so there's there's a lot, but even if they, even even without Obamacare, these companies would still be sitting on their money, waiting for the demand side of the economy to start showing greater signs of life. Call Tubman. The other the other point you keep saying, that, what kind of signal does this send to Wall Street? Wall Street's got record profits, and then the stock market is is, is way up, and it continues to grow. So. But Denise, you know, she said in her testimony before the Senate Banking Committee that quantitative easing and the loose monetary policies that have been coming out of the uh, the Bernanke realm and now into carrying over into Janet Yellen's uh, tenure, she said, and I quote, this program can't continue indefinitely. The reality is, though, we haven't heard anything coming out of either Janet Yellen or out of the administration that would suggest when this might come out of play and we'll get back to business as usual in the Federal Reserve Bank. And she can't say something right now because if she was to make an abrupt statement, the markets would nosedive. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to see incremental statements 
by Janet and Ellen and others that may give you indications, but they're going to do this gradually. To do it abruptly would negatively impact the market. Congressman Al? Well, talking about the problem that Denise and I are most concerned about, which is the, the separation of wealth from the mass population, uh, the Federal Reserve is not going to solve that all by itself. Having somebody there that is aware of it and talks about it, I think, is useful. And the Federal Reserve may be able to help here and there. But many other things, including some action from Congress, <laughs> uh, will be necessary before you can really attack that problem. Bob Lines? I think Al's right. I think, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of things that Congress could do that they aren't doing. And I'm not even going to try to begin to discuss it. We all know that they're, they, they've got, uh, they got a problem up, up in the Senate today. I think they're going to be voting, aren't they, later on today about the, uh, about this 1.3 million uh, people who are, benefits are going to be, are been reduced. I think. Well, they're now debating it. They're now debating it. They're debating it today. Now, you know, the Democrats are saying, we just want to do it. The Republicans are saying, we'll be happy to do it, but let's pay for it. The Democrats say, no, we don't want to pay for it. But That's a problem. But with the logjam that right now is facing Congress, does, does Janet Yellen now have the opportunity to get aggressive in pushing some of that policy into Congress? Or would Congress listen? Well, they haven't listened to anybody else. <laughs> I don't see why they listen to her. Alan Moore? You know, it, it is interesting. The... The Congress and the country does pay attention to what the Fed chairman says. It used to pay attention to, to Alan Greenspan when he would be asked on things outside of the purview of the Fed. For example, was he concerned about the run-up in stock prices? And he talked about, about uh, uh, the, the exuberance uh, uh, in, uh, in the markets. But, and he was asked at different times, what do you think about tax increases and tax cuts, and he would venture forth. But, but these people do that, these guys as, as Fed chairs, at their own peril because the markets do react instantaneously. They, over, they, they think, wow, this, this major player has appeared to embrace an idea that gives it more currency. I, I think Bernanke watched uh, Greenspan step into it a few times, and he was extremely cautious. And I don't have any reason to believe that Janet Yellen is not also going to be very, very careful of how far she ventures forth into areas outside her purview. doesn't mean she doesn't have opinions and won't find ways to share them, but she's going to be well, very cautious about it. But one of the criticisms that. that we heard about Ben Bernanke is that he was, in some instances, very risk-adverse as to getting aggressive on monetary policy. That contradicts his quantitative easing policy, but a lot of people in the, in, in the economic sector said he could have been a little bit more aggressive. I don't know in how, what way, when you've got interest rates that are near zero, he's used up his toolbox. I'm not sure what else that person can do, unless he wants to go out and, and, and step into a whole bunch of other subject areas and, and try to, to, to cause uh, to, to influence other policy, but I, I don't I don't think that's appropriate for the chair. Uh, I think Greenspan created problems for himself by stepping outside, and I don't see Yellen stepping outside. It doesn't mean she can't express 
sympathy and concern for particular issues in the economy and talk about the role of the Fed as being an important part of all of this, an important player, but it's not as though she's got a lot of other tools that, that are not already being used pretty much to the extent that they can. Well, very good. I'm going to let that be the last word. We're going to continue, obviously, to look at uh, Janet Yellen as she comes in uh, as the brand-new chairwoman of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank. It's going to be an interesting few weeks coming up here uh, in financial policy realms. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's interjection into the Utah gay marriage case. Lots of interesting variables going on there over there at uh, the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Do look back in town yeah. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Well, as moderator, you think I got control of this show? Not a clue. Uh, we were going to talk about the gay marriage. We're going to bring that up in the, in the second hour. But what uh, the crew decides they want to talk about, in conjunction to our discussion about Janet Yellen, is, in fact, the Senate clearing the first hurdle to debate the bill 
extending unemployment benefits to many millions of Americans that are unemployed right now to the price tag of $26 billion, which brings up a huge political firestorm on the Hill. First of all, uh, Alan Moore, as our Dean of Accuracy, tell us a little <laughs> bit about tell us a little bit about the bill as it stands right now, because yeah. it's a yeah. clean bill, which may not be the case when it gets to the House. The uh, you know, this this bill this this law was was created at the beginning of the big recession when Bush was uh, George Bush, W. Bush forty three was still president, and it basically said that. We acknowledge that most of the responsibility for unemployment insurance in this country resides in the states, and employers pay taxes to the state governments. That creates a fund, and then when people are unemployed, they get typically, it varies in the state, but typically 26 weeks of benefits. Right. It was, as the recession was coming into full gear and people were being laid off, and it was pretty obvious that this stuff was going to last a while, uh, they, they, they passed an emergency law for emergency federal benefits not funded by any tax, right? To be tacked on to the 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 typically state-run programs, and it said we don't care what's going on in your state. If you've been if you've exhausted your your 20 or 26 weeks or whatever it is in your state, you can automatically get 14 more weeks. And then beyond that, if your unemployment rate in your state is higher, there were some 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 other steps where you could get additional weeks and you could actually get up to about 77 weeks or 73 weeks and in odd cases even up to 99 weeks so up to more than two years this thing was was done temporarily <laughs> on an emergency basis it was extended it was extended it was extended it was extended what's being talked about now is a th three-month extension which would cost six and a half billion the, the, the Democrat idea seems to be, let's do this three months at a time so we can keep bringing it up and pounding on those insensitive Republicans who don't care about the long-term unemployed, uh, which is, of course, their narrative. Uh, it, and, and some of us consider that a, a, a bankrupt and false narrative. There are other things one can do. Now, what the Republicans have been asking for were a couple things, as, as Bob mentioned before. We can do this, but how about let's finding a way to pay for it rather than just borrow it from the Chinese? So that's something that, that some Democrats are kind of interested in. It's not easy finding pay-fors, as we know. The other issue is, what are the terms under which this thing is going to get brought up? Are we going to have a chance to amend it? Right now, there are 17 states that have unemployment rates less than 6.5%, which was always kind of a threshold. They get the extra 14 weeks too. Right. North Dakota's got a 2.8 percent unemployment rate. They hardly need this kind of thing under any circumstance. There are three states with unemployment over 9 percent. Nevada, Illinois, not Ohio, Illinois, Nevada, and Michigan. Michigan. And and there's some some others that are up there. Those are the states with the real heavy lag and, and, and concern here. But, but there's very little talk in the press. You wouldn't even know that what the details were, how the system works. It's like, oh, my God, these poor people, let's extend the benefits, and who cares? We'll worry about paying for it later, rather than saying, Bob, are there changes we could make that would better target this right. kind of program? Right. Bob Hines. That's the key point. Obviously, there are places that are seriously having problems, 
and they need to be they need to be protected in those areas. There are other states that, as, as Alan says, that are almost it, it's North Dakota's. It makes no sense to putting putting money there, and it also makes no sense to extend programs without paying for it. None. We don't need to do that. There are a lot of things that can be done. But you know, and, Con- and we're talking about six billion dollars, I believe, isn't it? For the next well, it's three, three months worth. Three, three months, months worth. Yep. Yeah. Right. But now, the, the total extensions of everything went into play, according to the Democratic bill coming in through the Senate. The total price tag, according to CBO, Congressional Budget Office, is twenty-six billion, basically, for twelve months. For twelve, for 12 months. months. Correct. Yeah, and that's me. That's me. Every state gets the money, no matter whether they need it or not. Right. But but Congressman, now when when you know the number we see, you know, we hear Alan talking about three month extension, six billion dollars. But what we know for fact in the bill itself is the authorization for twenty six billion to go for the full twelve months, adding on another nine months to the extension everybody's talking about. Whether it's six billion or twenty six billion, that's still money that. A, wasn't part of the original budget deal, and B, is going to send some fiscal conservatives on the Hill, both the Senate and the House, into a tizzy. Is there any way that you see this going clean for an up-and-down vote in both the Senate or the House? I don't know about the Senate. Not in the House, for sure. Uh, What troubles me here is that that I think Alan was right, that the Democrats uh, are looking at the politics of this, and uh, trying to make uh, the, the devil out, out of the Republican Party. But on the other hand, what Republicans here around this table keep saying there are other things you can do if the Republicans got a bill, if they got a proposal, about doing it a different way. No. No, no, no. that's not true. Well, no, it is, though, because wait a minute. Mr. The Senate leader, Republican Senate leader from Kentucky, has said, in effect, if we can find a way to fund it, we're for it. But that, but they haven't put a bill forward that's that has the offset spending. Yeah, and what I'm getting at let's, is let's both parties get together and find a way to. What else? Well, yes, that's exactly where I'm headed. But the Democrats are playing games with this. The Republicans say no, no, no. Uh, but they have no plan for an alternative way to deal with this. Uh, and uh, they do that, I think, for largely. For, for, what, what you've got is the Republicans who don't want to raise any taxes and the Democrats who don't want to cut a dollar off of a program that already exists. Now, in a situation like that, I don't see where either side is going to move and, where, and I don't see a solution to this problem. They've got to get back. I, I, wa- I want... If, 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 if I could you know, wave a magic wand, what I do is get the committees, go back to the committee structure, and get to work on Social Security, get to work on the debt, get to work on uh, these other, pro- the, uh, the, the the program, the automatic programs that, that pay out. Uh, solve that so that we are in a better fiscal situation and then attack some of these problems. That's not going to happen. But uh, I, I, I think it's... Alan Moore first and Bob. Yeah, the, the, the problem here, I mean, Al talks about wanting to turn it over to the committee, which I don't have any complaint or, 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 or problem with that. This, 
this expiration that ended December 28th, this didn't come out of the blue. That's been an established law for many, many months. Did the committees of either house, but let's talk about the Senate for a moment where the action is, sit down and say, how can we make this work? Absolutely not. They did not. And they could have. Are you you saying right now? Let's paraphrase real quick. It sounds like to me that you know we knew December 28 was coming up. We let December 28 come and go. Now we're in a new year, the beginning of midterm elections year. Are they politicizing poverty? Are they politicizing unemployment? Of course, of course they are. And and in this particular case, it's a winner for the Democrats. The, the Republicans are, are, are being painted as heartless and uncaring for these long-term unemployed. The Republicans are saying, wait a sec, wait a sec. We don't mind doing this, but we'd like to better target it. We'd like to figure out a way to pay for it. We'd like to do something more than just hand checks to these people. We'd like to figure out a way, if you're in long-term unemployed, a way to, a, a way to get you some job training. But they um, don't say, and here's the plan to do that. Well, that, but, but whose job is it to say who's the plan? You can't have it both ways, Al. You can't say, where's the, the Republican plan, and then also say, turn it over to the committees and let them do it. I mean, it's got to be one or the other. Denise Crap. All right, I'm going to go inside baseball uh, and slightly switch the topic here. There was an announcement made this afternoon that they may have a conferee meeting on the Farm Bill on Thursday. This is, uh, no, hold on, hold on. I'm going to get there. Okay. As we all know, there's wheeling and dealing that's about to happen. I agree with you. If we want this money to pay for the unemployed, then we need to pay for it. If we pay for it, what are the things we're going to cut? Well, you're going to start looking, and this is where the wheeling and dealing is going to happen, is what other bills are moving, and what are you going to put into the unemployment bill that you're going to take out of the farm bill, and not only the farm bill, but what's going on with the DOD. All three of these bills are interrelated I, right now. Right, except, except for the fact that you've got the administration today, you've got a Secretary of Labor who was on CNN earlier who said this has got to go through as a clean up and down vote. And you and I have been around this town long <laughs> enough that this bill is not going to be clean. There are going to be deals that are going to be made, and the deals have to be made because that's the only way they're going to get the vote. Carl Tuman. <clears throat> First of all, you talk about trying to, to meet, to do something, to make compromise. Republicans took tax reform out of the uh, out of, out of the ball game. So you can't look to the Ways and Means Committee or the Senate Finance Committee who have been working on tax reform to come up with any answers. There's another group of people here that have also been harmed by the budget agreement. That is military veterans. The military veterans uh, have their retirements cut and it's, going, it's hurting them. It's a big movement in the veterans community uh, to, to try to, uh, to change that. And some people are trying to get something as an amendment on, the, on, on this bill so that it could be, so that it had to be brought up in, in the House. But the, pro- the, 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 the problem that we're hearing with that, Carl, is if, even if you attach that, the, the military retirees pension aspect to that, it then takes the bill and the total price tag for the authorization from $26 billion up to almost $70 billion, which is going to throw Republicans even more into a frenzy. Well, Congressman Al. I, I just wanted to say that, 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 that Alan is absolutely right when he says that now is not the time to do it. The point that I was trying to make is that we've spent all of this Congress fighting 
on partisan basis, doing nothing, when there was a lot we should have been doing to clear the decks so that we could deal with these kinds of problems. And we better get started at it sometime or we will find ourselves months down with another crisis and, again, still no money to be able to pay. But, but, Congressman Alley, again, when we part of the compromise in the budget deal that we got late last year was the fact that, look, we've got to get fiscal spending under control. What this does is take the budget deal that had a price tag and move that and keep building up into more and more deficit spending. You're talking about anywhere from $6 billion to $26 billion to even, depending on what you put on this thing, could be as high as almost $70 billion. But where is all the concern expressed months ago about the entitlements? We've got to deal with the entitlements. Well, we haven't done a damn thing about the entitlements. No, and, and we're not likely to in eight years close time. Alan Moore. The, the, the irony, Al, there is that the, the one thing, the one little baby thing that's not as big as you just said on entitlements is this little change for young military retirees. Now, it's not little if, if, if you're, you're a retiree if, if you're, seven if, if out you're of the a, army. Right. But, but it's the kind of thing which it, it, it sort of blows my mind that they were able to include that and ignore all the much bigger stuff. I don't have a problem with the policy. I have a problem with the way they did it, it's picking that one out, and it's not $40 billion, it's about $6 billion um, over the next 10 years. It's, it's quite small in, in, the, in the larger scope of things, but... It's, it, it serves as a kind of example for the sort of thing we need to do systematically for Social Security, for Medicare, for federal pensions across the board. You can't just pick one out. It, it, it blows my mind that we picked one out that happened to well, deal the one with thing veterans. The, the one thing is, I want to point out is, you know, when we talk about entitlements, military, military retiree spending is non-discretionary spending. That's not something we really have. We've got to pay that retirement. As we do Social Security, as we do Medicare, Medicaid, that's non-discretionary spending. Theoretically, the Republicans will argue, well, by changing the rules on military retirees, we're dealing with, in a small form, non-discretionary spending. It's one stop, but it's a beginning. And I'm going to call hogwash on that because I can tell you that I signed up, and when I signed up, I was told that this is what I was going to get when I retired, like everybody else of my generation. Now, if you're about to tell me that I agreed to put the uniform on, agreed to take a bullet for the United States, but then you get to rewrite the rules, you're out of your mind. But you're dealing, but Denise, you're dealing with, but they're not saying that you're not going to get paid. What they're saying is they want to have to change the age requirements a little bit because you have to understand. The military right now, your senior leadership in the military are younger. Your senior NCOs were the average age 20 years ago was in your late 40s, early 50s, are now in your early 40s, late 30s. They're retiring at 38. They're retiring at 39 and 40 and 41. That means that they could go 70 years of non-discretionary spending tapping in with the largest military force that we've seen in modern history. Because you want, the United States government needed us. The United States government wanted to send us to Iraq. The United States government wanted to send us to Afghanistan. If you want us to serve, then you damn well better be honest hey, in what hey, you're look, doing. Hey, look, I, I, I'm a veteran. I, I'm former military. I get that. I was sold the same bill of goods. But the reality is, when you talk about the retiring force and the tax that it takes 
on giving those retirees, a lot of them still have 20 or 25 years that they could still put into the workforce. And, I agree with and you, oh, by the way, a lot of them, what I a lot of, but a lot of them are double dipping into the government contracting realm. They're getting jobs outside of retirement because and they're you know young what? enough. And they wore the uniform for 20 years and they served overseas and they were willing to take a bullet to the United States. So if you're going to take a bullet to the United States and the U.S. government ought to represent them fairly. They, they are representing them fairly. They're by getting... cutting their salaries and by taking their retirement? Alan Moore? The fact of the matter is, and this is the problem when, when you get into the details, everybody loves to talk about getting the entitlements under control and making the long, slow changes that will bring things back closer to balance. The devil is in the details. We see the emotion here, which is understandable, um, from... Uh, from a, from a, a retired veteran um, and, and somebody who served 19 years in the military, they get squat. They get nothing. I gave 12 20, years of my life. You get, I gave 12 years you, of my life. You know what I get? So you I get, get, you get zero. 19 yeah. years and 360 days, you get nothing. 20 years in a day, you get everything. And that's a stupid system, but, but it's the system that, that we have at the moment. We change these things all the time, not dramatically. It used to be that you, when you hit 65, you got your full Social Security. It, not anymore. It's now 66 on its way to 67, and it probably needs to go higher. And federal pen, other federal civil service pensioners, the, the rules surrounding Medicare, we have formulas for benefits that are not affordable. We have to tackle them all together, slowly, carefully, with modest adjustments throughout. The, the potential savings are massive. The impact on individuals is real but small. That's why I can't understand why they picked this particular one to drop into this budget deal. Um, veterans of all, of all people are particularly sympathetic because, because they do lay their lives on the line. Um, and, and, uh, and yet, I think you can't take anything off the table because we're going to be arguably breaking promises to everybody for the greater good. Congressman Al? I, I, com I completely agree with Alan on this. You can't deal with it piecemeal. After we passed, was it the budget, or we, we did some big cutting, and then the first thing that came up was the agriculture bill. No. And we started putting money back into it, you know. And because the little farmer needed it and the big farmer needed it and the yeah, biggest crop needed it and so forth and so on. It is, as long as we do not have a general plan for dealing with entitlements so that you can say to Denise, yes, you make a very good point, but over here we're doing something on Social Security and those people were promised and we're doing something on this and those people were promised so that people can at least see that there's being a shared uh, sacrifice. sacrifice here. And, and if we continue to do it piecemeal, it will be whatever is the most well, popular is going to... Well, let's not get back to that. The, I'm, what, 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 what Alan said was we need to sit down and deal with this as a whole. But, what, what, but I want to get back to the unemployment benefits bill because the reality is we've got in typical Democratic form, Democrats saying, look, we're going to take care of our hurting Americans, our impoverished, our unemployed, and the Republicans, in, in shocking respect, are going, that's fine, show me offset cash. 
if you have to kill a defense program or an ag program or a state department or a commerce program to fund it, fine. Give us, give us a target base. They're not doing that. The Democrats are continuing to build up on an already fragile budget deal and continues the spending of the federal government. The Republicans keep saying, show us the way without suggesting a way well, on, their, on their own. Bob Hines first. We need $6 billion uh, to take care of these, uh, these, uh, these benefits for the next three months. Right. We have in the Farm Bill $4 billion for ethanol benefits or so that everything that corn grows, that, you know, everything, everything has got corn in it. The prices are up in the grocery store. You don't need a benefit anymore for the for the ethanol industry. You take that four billion dollars and you pay two thirds of the cost. That's a good idea. Where's the other two, one third come? Let the Democrats come up with an idea. Here's, here's my problem with all take this. Take the four billion dollars. Alan, will you just interject something real quick? Here's my problem with this real quick. Alan pointed out that North Dakota has an unemployment of 2.9%. You actually have states like Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, that are actually trying to recruit skilled labor to move to that state. The problem I have is that there are jobs out there. People don't want to go to where the jobs are. People that, can't go to the jobs if they're underwater and they're bankrupt. How do you go to yeah. some of these then, jobs? Then you know what you do. Then you know what you do. Then you work with the states and the federal government instead of putting instead of putting twenty six billion into it, take a sliver of that, put that into programs where you know what will help you in the underwater house. They have that. They have the uh, the uh, HARP program. The HARP program is designed for this type of thing. There are jobs out there people don't, we've inherently created, in some instances, a somewhat lazy environment for job seekers. They can go to the jobs they choose not to. They choose not to take the job. Well, first of all, I'm going to make sure that our, you know, the folks that are listening to us are not thinking that we're calling them lazy, because I can tell you there are a lot of people out there that are so desperate to find a job that they'll take anyone that they possibly can get at this point in time in order to feed and put money on, you know, on their, feed their families. So I, I understand your argument, Justin. I disagree with it. I think that, you know, one of the reasons you have a lot of those jobs in North Dakota and some of the other places is the oil industry. It is an unexpected industry that we did not predict five years ago. Five years ago, we were importing LNG. Nobody expected us to export LNG. Therefore, five years ago, when people started getting laid off, they didn't expect they were going to go to North Dakota. Are people probably going to consider it now? Absolutely. But they have to be able to do that. And if you have families and you have a house that you have to pay for that you cannot afford, you have to do certain things. It's not as if you but can pick up But there are programs food. out there that are designed to fix this, and that's the problem is. If there is a job, and by the way, when you look at South Dakota, when you look at Minnesota, Wyoming, it's not oil. You've got Amazon putting distribution centers and data centers in some of these states. But the people that can operate that don't want to move to the miserable environment of backwoods South Dakota. That's the problem. Let me remind everybody something about how these, how these unemployment benefits work. So you get your basic benefits from your state that you have to exhaust, and then you can get an automatic 14 more weeks, and then you can get additional weeks if the problems in your state are high. You don't get unemployment benefits for life. 
it's always a certain number of weeks. It's always been that way. What we're doing is we're trying to keep people uh, uh, above water for a period of time, particularly in high unemployment states. But let's face it, it's not the job of the federal government or the state government to keep these people in place indefinitely. That's not what the government does. There's an enormous amount of very sad displacement and hardship that occurs. Look at Detroit. But, but, stuff's, but, but things do get sorted out but over time. Seems- now, what they need to do, what they need to do in the Senate, I wanted to make this point. Harry Reid has brought this bill forward in a way that doesn't allow amendments. And this is this problem we talk about around this table when we get complaints about filibusters and Senate rules, and you get complaints back from me that Harry Reid, more than any other leader, uh, and it's been increasing, just like filibusters have, brings bills forward in ways that don't allow any amendments, which is contrary to the long history of the Senate. That's what he's trying to do here, and that's why this bill is in such jeopardy. Several of the people, the Republicans who voted to take up the bill said, unless we find a pay for or modifications to this proposal that I can live with, I won't vote for the final bill. So it's still subject to filibuster. The right way to do this, given this short period of time, because the benefits did run out on the 28th, is make some slight little changes that could probably cut the cost at least a third and then offset some of the costs with some cuts and then agree that, well, we offset some of it and we're, we're now a billion short instead of six and a half billion short. And by the way, let's get off our ass as committees and as, as houses of Congress and do something over the next three months so that three months from now at the end of March, when we're right back where we are today, we can have a more comprehensive set of changes, pay-fors, et cetera. That's not what we do very well anymore. Carl Tubin. Yeah, the big... Well, you're here, I want to say. All right. The big Carl pro- Tubin. The big problem is, is that we have learned, Congress has learned nothing from what happened with Senator Murray and, and Paul Ryan. They worked together. You might not agree with all the, all the agreements, but they put something together. And, and, and here today, we, we've known about this problem. We knew the 28th was coming. Nobody sat down during Christmas or during the break. Nobody came together and said, well, let's take it from here, let's take it from here, let's take it from here. So it's a pox on both houses in that regard because they're still not doing what we know they should do, and that's work together on these problems. Bob Hines. You know, stepping back for a minute, the reason that we are in such a pickle here on the whole budgeting structure and where the dollars come from and how we spend them is because for years both parties have not been willing to negotiate deals that have to be made with respect to entitlements, with respect to some of the programs that are not as necessary anymore as they used to be. New programs coming on. There are always new things coming on that need funding. There's old things that never stop getting money that we may not need need so much. There are all kind of things we could do. We have never in the last 20 years wanted to, wanted to face up to the reality that we have bills we have to pay, and the only way to pay it is clean up our act. There hasn't been a change in the a positive change in the in the in the Internal Revenue Code since in 
1986 when it was last amended. Ever since then, ever since then, every year, more and more barnacles have been put into the tax code for goodies for one group, another group, all kinds of groups, Democratic money and Republican stuff. Both sides have been getting their deals made. The fact of the matter is the bills do, bills overdue. And we have got to find a way to get together and solve the problem. And it's, a, it's a going to be a huge problem because where do you start? Where do you start? But again, you know, when we talk about the unemployment benefits bill, you know, we, we are seeing, we're seeing unemployment rates in many states drop below the national average in, in, in large form. We're seeing jobs being created. We're seeing jobs that are out there. It is a matter. Detroit, special instance. We need to help out Detroit, absolutely. It was a major city. There is a major problem in Detroit. Instead, the federal government insists on painting this large-scale brush that continues to cost this country and the taxpayers money. It is fiscally irresponsible. Not when there are jobs out there to be had. There are jobs, and I just can't get off the fact that nobody wants to go to where the jobs are because it's not where they want to be. That's my, that's my, that's my problem. That's my big problem with it. That, I want to take moderator privilege and say, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about either Benghazi or gay marriage. We'll figure it out, but one of those two topics will be on. They kind of, kind of go together. They, they kind of do. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're synonymous, I guess. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. And we're back here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's our first show of the year, our second half of the first show of the year, 2014, and a really good show, but we got to figure out what we're going to talk about now. We had so much we got to cover. Your call. Do we cover Benghazi in the New York Times, or do we cover gay marriage in Utah? Let's, let's, let's do the Utah thing. You want to do the Utah thing? Because I don't understand it. <laughs> okay. And I want somebody to explain what yeah. the Supreme Court is. And I would also like us to take a look forward before we finish, let's say this, the last half hour, and look at what's going to be going on in the next year. Well, then I guess we're talking about Benghazi oh, next week. That's, uh, that's depressing. That's depressing. Well, then, uh, for those of you who have seen the, the large... Uh, the, the large hoo-ha that came out of the Supreme Court last week, oh, that, let me rephrase that, the large brouhaha that came out of the, I don't believe I just said that. Whose hoo-ha were you referring to? <laughs> Take two. <laughs> We're on the air, is that what you're yeah, telling yeah. Uh, The Supreme Court last week, Put Utah Utah uh, put out a law that authorized uh, same-sex marriages in their state. The Supreme Court uh, on last Monday uh, put a stay on that law and granted the state a stay in challenging a ruling that legalized the marriages. Uh, they've been taking place since before Christmas, but after the first year, obviously, the Supreme Court interjected. Uh, interestingly enough, the stay was granted by Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who referred it to the full court and, in an interesting take, basically saying, look, this is the state's rights to govern how they feel they need to deal with marriage laws in their state. This is contradictory, however, to the Supreme Court ruling that pretty much allowed the California law to go forward, but there's a lot of different political and legal nuances around this. Alan, give us your take on this right now. You know, because it's, it, it, it's an obscure and confusing rule that's coming out here. Well, the, the decision inside Utah really surprised um, Utah. Uh, it was a federal judge who said the, uh, the, the law in Utah violates the state's constitution. Um, and 
I think it's violated the state constitution and not the federal, and I'm happy to stand corrected if I'm wrong about that. And, and what, what's, what often happens in highly controversial cases like this is a judge will make a finding, but then he will stay implementation for a period of time, knowing that a higher court will need to review. Um, it, that's what that's what the losing side of this argument, which happened to be the state of Utah, uh, was seeking, and and the judge declined to do that. Uh, the court of appeals is now reviewing it uh, in total, um, but it took a Supreme Court uh, m- maneuver. Uh, I won't call it a decision because it doesn't have the uh, the, it's not as though it's an official decision, uh, a Supreme Court action to put the stay on this until it can be fully reviewed by the Court of Appeals and almost certainly then by the Supreme Court. The, the, it, it's very significant, though, what, what, what's potentially being said here. It, came, it matured sooner than we thought, although we all knew we were headed in this direction. Is it a violation of the federal constitution for states who heretofore have decided what marriage is and what it isn't, to decide that it that marriage can only be between a man and a woman, if it's a violation of the federal Supreme Court, that'll be breaking new ground. Uh, I'm not predicting that that's what's going to happen, but that's what needs to be decided, and it's appropriately decided at the Supreme Court, not by a federal right. judge uh, or even by or a court of appeals. lower court. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, is the the attorneys have filed. Uh, the, the lawsuit and filed for the stack uh, in their filing stated, quite frankly, uh, let me get to it, that numerous same-sex marriages are now occurring every day in Utah. Each one is an affront not only to the interests of the state and its citizens in being able to define marriage through ordinary democratic channels, but also to the court's unique role as the final arbiter. They're basically playing on it almost seems like they're playing on the emotions of, of, of the Supreme Court of saying, hey, you know, this law, which obviously is an affront to every citizen that voted either for or against gay marriage, the law is the law. And, oh, by the way, this is an affront to you as the Supreme Law decider in the United States. Bob Hines, pretty smart legal move on the part of the plaintiffs in this case. You know, our, the, way, the way citizens of the United States... Uh, in all parts of the country, are thinking about things like gay marriage and other social issues is changing relatively rapidly, surprisingly so, I think. Now, so from my standpoint, I mean, I think that uh, while I might have a particular point of view, it seems to me that the reality is that as things move in directions that uh, might have been surprisingly uh, unacceptable, uh, they might have been unacceptable many years ago, are becoming surprisingly acceptable. Now that's not to say they're right or wrong or indifferent, it's to say that's where, that's where general attitudes are moving. And I see no reason why the movement of those uh, it should be uh, stopped necessarily, unless you can find a, a reason that has more to do with substance than just we don't like it. I think it's going to continue to grow. But, but, but Bob, the state of Utah in its filing 
in its subsequent filing to the court, stated that, quote, the states have a powerful interest in controlling the definition of marriage within their borders that is indisputable, unquote. That, that unto itself, legally, the state of Utah isn't saying, look, it's not an anti-gay marriage or gay marriage thing. Our voters have spoken. It's a state's rights issues. Federal government, stay out of it. Unless you want to change the federal government's role in defining what marriage is, then make it a constitutional amendment. That's not, that, I mean, they're not outside the realm of reality what they're saying. Denise Krepp, you're shaking your head. But the circumstances have changed. I mean, the, the, the cases that we were looking at a year ago, one of them had a question of standing. So we've knocked out the standing issue. Obviously, the state of Utah has standing, unlike what was going on in California. But what has also changed is the fact that the Pentagon is now recognizing gay and lesbian weddings. So the question, and I'm willing to bet this is going to be part of their, um, their brief, is the fact that Utah legally has to recognize a gay or lesbian military um, spouse. But they're not, they're, that's not the question. No, 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 but it will be pulled into it, because Utah is saying it's a state's right. The Defense Department has now, sta again, has stated that it recognizes gay and lesbian weddings. <laughs> By doing so, you have now put the imprimatur of the federal government over every state, because you've got military members in every state, and it's going to be forcing those states to recognize. But, but the state of Utah in this filing to the court has basically said, look, and, it, it, and it's a precedent that has not been brought up to the courts, and it's an argument that the court has not heard in the gay marriage issue, is states have rights, states have the ability to control marriage. If we do not want to allow marriage to happen in our state, and our voters either afford that privilege or not afford that privilege, that is up to the voters of our and state. And the states lost that when they lost Loving, because that's the Virginia case where it said blacks and whites couldn't marry, and the Supreme Court said, eh, no, African Americans and whites or anybody else, if they want to, can marry. The states cannot determine who you can get married to. Well, okay, so but, but, but on the basis of race. They didn't race. speak to the, they didn't yeah, the speak homosexual to race, issue. But based off of... Loving and based off of the decision that came out last year, I'm willing to put my money down that the Supreme Court is going to say, Utah, circumstances have changed. You do not have the but, ability to say but, that two But Denise, what you're marry. talking about, Denise, what you're talking about is mm -hmm. legislating from the bench. That's a very slippery slope for the Supremes. Good Lord, Jason, right. that's what they've been doing for over 220 years. No, 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 absolutely not. No, I am no, 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 no. One of my people are something called Brown versus Board of Education, where the uh, where the Supreme Court unanimously stepped into an area where they had heretofore not stepped, uh, obviously in contravention of the original uh, intent of the framers and the original language of the Constitution, and they said, never mind. And most of us, probably all of us, think that was a great decision and the right decision. Now, I'm not trying to equate this, but there are relevancies to it that one can say the Supreme Court steps in when it chooses to step in, and they argue about whether it's overstepping or understepping or ignoring or uh, original construction uh, uh, legislating from the bench. They do what they do, and we learn to live with it. I think in this particular case, though, I, I'll, I'll just remind everybody that that in, this, in, the, in the DOMA case, the, the Defense of Marriage Act, which the Supreme Court struck down, it basically said 
states, the, the federal government has to recognize the actions of states. It has to recognize marriage that is legal in states. That's and 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 that's what fed the decision of the of the the Defense Department to say, okay, well you also anybody have, who's legally married in a state where it's legal enjoys the marriage privilege. benefits right. uh, that that go to members of the military. It doesn't say that the states have to recognize those rights. Right. It doesn't even say that the states have to allow uh, same-sex couples to file as married couples if it contravenes state right. law. Well, right. But, but no, no, but wait a minute. We, we've got another situation here. We, we've, we're talking about the DOMA ruling. We're talking. We're going back and talking about loving. The one thing that we're not talking about is the fact that of the California decision, where the, the California the Proposition Eight decision basically afforded the fact that the state of California said. We will allow gay marriage. The Supreme Court upheld that decision and said, look, this is reality. The state has general tenure. Now, there are some, difference, there's some differences between the California ruling and the Utah uh, motion, but it still comes down to a, a simple federalist principle of the states have the right to govern their citizens in their state. It's a muddy water. Let me give you an example. In the military, you usually have TRICARE. I mean, it, it, you are an active duty. The active duty member goes to the active duty doctor. If you are lucky enough and you are in a place where you have a military installation where there are doctors who can see you, then your family members go to see the, um, the military doctor. If not, you are put on what's called TRICARE, which is the military insurance. But you're, you're but mixing you know, apples and uh, But I am not, because you here you go. Are. If, for example, you do not have a doctor... It's a federal that, program, But though. listen, if you do not have TRICARE and you are a military spouse living in, South, living in Utah and you have to go to, for example, the emergency room because your spouse is injured... Utah and those doctors will have to acknowledge the federal law that you are married. Those doctors will not be able to say you do not have the ability to make it's decisions. It's not up to the doctor, though. That's the that's no, what the I'm saying is we It's have not up to the doctor. The if the insurance coverage, if they have an insurance card that says that they're married, and the insurance company is going to pay for it, the doctors well, won't take them. Doctors that's the reality. Care, which means you have to but get it doesn't matter. Else. You're talking about a federal program. What the state is saying is, look, if you're a military, if you're a military spouse and you've got a military ID and a military benefit, guess what? You're a military spouse. What they're saying is that doesn't mean that we have to allow gay couples in Utah to get married and sanction that well, marriage and recognize it as legal. That because you do two have two separate stuff, things. You have it, you're going to go. Two separate things, I'm telling you. But the reality is, though, is when you talk about this, when you talk about gay marriage, and, and look, let me be clear, I am completely on board with gay marriage. I support gay marriage 100%. I absolutely believe that they are, are no different than a guy and a girl getting married. If, if, if they choose to make that legal and ceremonial commitment, they should have that right. They should be treated like no other American because of their, gay, or because of their sexual orientation. That being said, I'm also very much states' rights. You cannot tell me that Washington has the ability to go ahead and tell Utah, Massachusetts, California, and Michigan exactly what to do if it doesn't violate the Constitution. If I understand the legal situation where we are, the Supreme Court did not make a final decision on, uh, on gay marriage. Correct. Correct. It basically said, 
let's run this through the, the, the legal process, Which they and have. it will probably end up back at the Supreme Court. No yeah. doubt. At that point, <laughs> yeah. the decision between your point of view and, and Justin's will be decided. It will. Right. Yes. This, this so case therefore, will do it. I don't think there's any more point in us arguing about it here. <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and, it's not, and it's not at the Supreme Court yet. yet. But it's moving in that direction, yes. and they will consider it. And there are these two sides. There's the changing society, the changing culture, the role of states, the specific language of laws and constitutions, and, and it'll come down to the facts of a particular case, but it will be a very big deal, however it's decided. And it's right. going to be very interesting because the way a case is structured is going to be influential on the kind of decision you get. Yep. So Which makes this very interesting. Very interesting to see where the case comes from and what that state's law is and how it's structured. But it, it, it's really important. And, and that's what makes this case so interesting, in my view, is the fact that they're not saying we're against or for gay marriage. The state of Utah hasn't even come out and said anything, and, and they, they've been ubiquitous about it. The reality is that what they're saying is this is more states' rights than gay marriage, point blank. Which, which means that when the, if and when the Supreme Court decides to hear this case, I mean, Justice Sotomayor, who's a noted liberal on the court, Justice Sotomayor issuing the stay obviously saw this as something completely different than just gay marriage. This has got bigger ramifications. Absolutely. So this could be a very benchmark case. Well, it is, but let's, and let's not assume that we know how she will vote once we, it gets... I'm not saying that she voted. Right. This say isn't a vote. She just issued you know, a stay. This was a stay. Right. And, right. Because, because, she has, because she has jurisdiction over the courts in Utah. It's, it's not... It, it, well, she's also the stays justice as well. The, so what we're talking about is the fact that she issued a stay halting gay marriage in Utah was a very interesting, and I think a lot of people looked at it as, wait a minute, this is a liberal justice. The justice in charge of stays. Somebody's made the case to this justice saying this is a viable benchmark. Well, it, it just, it's not the fact that she's liberal. I mean, they do. Both sides have a strong legal argument. The question is going to be how all the nine Supreme Court justices come out. I, I, I wouldn't tell the fact that she's liberal on this. It's the fact that there was a case on both sides. I think that what she's done is, in effect, beginning to tee it up. Getting the, getting, the, getting the thing in front of the court. But she also had the option to not issue the stay based on legal argument and saying, look, until we get this sorted out, that's the law. You're going to have to live with it and then come back to me when you want to have the Supreme Court hear it. Exactly, and it will be decided ultimately by the Supreme <laughs> Court at some point. And I suggest we move on to another topic. What's wrong with this topic? This is a great topic. We're all very happy. We're, 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 talking you just, we're talking in circles. That's what's wrong with it. Oh, this. stop. Al, we've there's, lost Al's interest. There's therefore. nothing wrong with the topic. We're done with the topic. Yeah. Oh, now, oh, good Lord. We've Fine. Fine. Bunch of babies. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk, talk about what 2014 has in store for us politically. We're going to take a little bit of a break. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You want a bottle for that martini now? Jeez, whiny baby. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. But you were in tune.
you know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, and we're going to start off our last half hour just talking about what we can expect in politics here in Washington, D.C., now that Congress has come back, now that the President's back from Hawaii, and everybody's starting to gear up. 2014 turns out to be a really interesting year going forward. We, this is the midterm elections year, which means that it's going to be a political crap show. Bob Hines, what are you expecting in 2014? What's the big What's the big political topic you think we're going to be talking about? Well, uh, both parties uh, have uh, retreats scheduled uh, for later this month, which means that uh, the members of the Congress uh, go off uh, in their separate organizational groups, usually to a nice nice resort, and they spend three or four days discussing how they are going to proceed in this election year for the House and the Senate. 
Um, I suspect that we are not going to have a war over the uh, budget legislation and the deficit legislation. I think that's not going to happen. What about debt ceiling? I think that there will be an increase in the debt ceiling, and I don't think the Republicans will go, will, will try to kill it. I think they will see it as a necessary. They will probably suggest that the Democrats are being irrational in their responsibility, lack of responsibility, and not being willing to adjust benefit programs that are, that are unable to be sustainable. Now, beyond that, I suspect the, the both parties will move forward. What I think the biggest, if I were the Republicans, and I'm just going to speak for that moment, if right now there are several big problems that are still inherent within uh, Obamacare, the, uh, the Affordable Care Bill. There are the problems, the, pro the biggest problem is that the young invincibles are not joining the program. If they don't join the program to the tune of almost three, 3 million people, they, the program will not be able to sustain itself financially unless the government goes, you know, spends tons of more money or forces the insurance people to raise their rates. Town more is a pure it's going over to be a real big problem, and that is going to maybe maybe be the most significant political issue that both parties are dealing with going toward the election. Well, period. it seems that with the unemployment benefit packages coming up, debt ceiling right now in the crosshairs of everybody in Washington, Alan Moore, is Obamacare kind of uh, last week's topic? Is oh, that my God, no. No, 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 no. No, what, what, we're, what we're doing, what we're seeing right now is this little moment of, of, of the, the, the Democrats uh, pretending to care only about this inequality issue and only about the little guy. And what's their answer? Extended unemployment benefits in a program that they don't want to have to pay for and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense the way it's structured. And increase the minimum wage. And we have this crazy business of a federal minimum wage where New York City and rural Mississippi have the same federal minimum wage, which is nuts, which is why so many states set their own minimum wages, which makes a whole lot more sense because there's such differences and distinctions. Fine, raise it, raise it to 10 bucks, raise it to 12, raise it to 15, how about 20 bucks, who cares? I mean, this whole notion that none of this matters and is cost-free and there's no Is this the year of the unemployed? Well, I, this is the year. What they do is they talk about inequality, and then they got these little nothing responses. What, they, what these people need is jobs. Now, there's no stomach, no stomach in either party, really, except for a handful here and there, to invest significantly in infrastructure spending. I mean, if, if you really want to create jobs, you've got to create jobs. You've got to create demand. We talked about that earlier. You've got to create demand for some kind of labor. And, uh, and we've been on this, this sort of jag, of, uh, which, which we understand and we've talked about, of, of reducing the deficit. The problem is we need to reduce the deficit in the long term and we need to stimulate in the short term, um, and we're not willing to do either one. But it seems so also we're going to talk about 
the, around the edges. We're going to blame the other guy, the irresponsible, uncaring Republicans who 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 could give who could give a damn about about the poor little guy, and then the irresponsible, big spending Democrats who just want to spend money and not find any way to pay for it. But Denise, we're hearing both sides talk about taxes. There's a little bit of buzz going around that tax reform might be on the plate. Is that something that we will actually see? Now they've been talking about this since the budget battle started in in true effect. But is the reality, are we going to see some movement on both sides of the House going, hey, tax reform's the new thing. We've got to get this under control. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the fact that the last big reforms occurred in the 1980s, and I think I heard the board barnacles uh, a couple of minutes ago, we do need to clean up the barnacles that have been created over the past 15, 20, almost 30 years at this point in time. We need a tax code that is workable, and we need tax reform that makes sense. I mean, if we're going to start talking about cuts, that's one way to you know, bring down the deficit. But the other way is going to be for taxes. And you have to do it in a way that both sides agree. I mean, that, that's one of the things I think people learned with, the, um, with certain pieces of legislation recently. If it's only passed by one party, then you can have the other party pushing back and pushing back. Whereas if you can get both sides talking about it, it's something that both sides can promote and therefore win on. But Congressman now we talk a lot about we, we talk a lot about it today on this show, the non discretionary spending, the Medicare, the Medicaid, the retirement benefits, Social Security, etc. You know, we talk about tax reform. Do you think that they might touch the non discretionary spending third rail this year, particularly in a midterm election, or are they going to stay away? Well I think the odds are they'll stay away. <coughs> but even though it's tied into so many other key topics? In spite of the fact that it's essential. Uh, this, this is not a responsible Congress. Uh, but I would point out, toward the very end of this first session of the Congress, some very positive things happened. Uh, Senator Murray and uh, Representative Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan uh, came up with uh, with a, uh, a solution that uh, passed both houses. That was that's positive. You can say it, they should have done more. They should have done less. But it got passed. Something was done. Uh, other positive things have occurred. I think uh, John Boehner trying to let the Tea Party know that he's got some influence in the House and that they need to be careful what they're doing is a very positive thing. Now, the question is, that's how 19 or, or 2013 ended. We're in 2014. Is that going to continue? In which case, I think all of the things that we have just been talking about are possible. It's possible to take them up. It's possible to make progress and what have you. If, in fact, though, we revert to the kind of uh, situation we were in before, where it was, uh, you're a bad guy and I'm a good guy and to hell with you, if that is how Congress reverts, then nothing's going to happen and, and the election in, in 20, 2014 is going to be about who caused it. Well, 
Carl Tubin, towards the end of the year, we saw the budget deal. We saw a glimmer of hope that there might be some compromising, deal-making, wheeling and dealing of the Congresses of old. Is that a trend that you think might even convey over into 2014, or are we still going to see the logjam of both Democrats and Republicans? I think we're going to see the logjam, unfortunately. Uh, <clears throat> as I said before, people should have been working on this, on this uh, unemployment situation over the last four or five weeks, they should have come together, uh, the tried to solve the problem, get the money from somewhere, and, and pay for it. They didn't do that, and that's very disappointing. Um, there, there's, there's just, unfortunately, besides the, what happened with Ryan and, and Senator Murray, there's just so much dysfunction. And so many people who don't want to work together with other people. I mean, you've got small groups that, that work together well, uh, others that don't. And uh, it, it's just, it, it's very uh, discouraging. Bob Hines. Let me touch on something that uh, I think Al said, talking about uh, uh, Speaker Boehner. Uh, just to remind folks that um, shortly after the Murray Ryan bill passed. The speaker, who had let the Tea Party people, I think three or four times, try to defund the Obamacare bill, passing it through the House, dropping it dies in the Senate because the Democrats won't pass it. Even if it did, the president would veto it. I mean, you know, in effect, doing the same thing over and over again is a, is a definition of insanity. And I think the Tea Party people begin to learn. And I think, as Al said, what happened was that uh, Speaker had enough authority and he felt comfortable in, in effect, calling out some of these uh, fundraising organizations, Club for Growth, uh, uh, the, uh, 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 the Jim DeMint's operation, oh, Heritage, Heritage Foundation. Foundation, and several others. Uh, he called them out and said, you know, you guys are screwing things up. I think he's got, he's got enough strength now in his caucus that the House may be able to be more responsive to anything the Senate, if the Senate might move in a direction that we can work together. I don't know. I think Carl is probably more right than, than uh, I'd like him to be in that fact that it probably there'll be, because it's an election year, it's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, but Bob, I mean, this is a critical, critical moment in Speaker Boehner's center as Speaker and his political career. Yeah. I mean, th where the House goes in the 2014 midterms is going to largely, and the Senate in many instances, is going to determine the success or, uh, unfortunately, the failure of John Boehner as Speaker sure. being able to control the party. Yeah. Is, I mean, unfair or fair as it is, is that a concern in the Speaker's office? I'm sure it is. Uh, and, you know, as everybody knows I know John pretty well, and I'm sure it's a problem up there. I mean, they they have a they have the the super difficult problem of um, uniting the the majority party in the House of Representatives so that it can it, it, so that it can legislate. They have not been able to do so very much. It's been very difficult. And it's been difficult, not because the Democrats are so violently against what's going on. It's because within the Republican Party, there are significant differences within the House. 
and uh, I think now that some of the Tea Party people have begun to learn a little bit about it is not bad to go across the aisle and talk to somebody on the other side and say, can we work something out? Can we find a solution? And I think that's a big plus. Whether it will continue, I don't know. But Denise, I'd normally go to Congressman Al on this because I know his love for Nancy Pelosi. But I want to go to you on this as being a former congressional staffer on the D side. This is also a critical year for Nancy Pelosi. Just as John Boehner's sitting on tax, Nancy Pelosi's got to be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, this could be my critical watershed in whether she's been looked at as successful as a minority leader and her political prowess going forward. Is she nervous about this or is she confident? Absolutely, but you're never going to know it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. But 2014 is going to be a big year for both of those individuals, Congressman Al. I don't really think that the Tea Party knows this. They don't know very much about anything. But they have managed to put the focus on the Republican Party's intransigence on many, many things. If you ever get something moving, I think there is going to be a chance that we will see how intransigent the liberals can be. So far, they have managed to just keep their heads down and, and the most amazing thing, their mouths shut, uh, that for a liberal, that's extremely hard, and and so the, the Republicans have been getting all the bad press for what they're doing. If the if the uh, if Boehner is, is successful in getting the Tea Party to shut up, it may to your to your voice to God's ear. Yeah, to me, <laughs> they get him to shut up. If they do. Then, what is Nancy Pelosi's solution? If things start moving through uh, with cooperation from the Republicans that uh, are th things like the extension of unemployment comp, who, who then is likely to become the, the, the stick in the mud that it's got to be my way or the highway? And I think the chances are that would be Nancy Pelosi. Alan Moore. The best thing that happened to uh, Speaker Boehner and the Tea Party uh, in the last few months is Obamacare. Um, the, the, the Republicans overplayed their hand. They shut down government for a couple of weeks, oh, at least little small parts of it, as we now know, um, uh, for, for, for a while. But it was stupid and it was disruptive and it, and it looked bad all over Obamacare, if you will, all while Obamacare was poised to be its own worst enemy. And it will continue to be. They got the the uh, uh, the website fixed. Hooray! We all knew that was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. Now we're way, way, way behind in signing people up. We don't even know who these people are, but there's no particular reason to believe that healthy people of any age, particularly young but older too, uh, are signing up. It is highly likely that as of January one. Fewer people had insurance in 2014 than had insurance at the end of 2013. That is a devastating fact in and of itself 
um, because so many people were canceled. So many people were canceled. You're our authority on facts. Yes. That is an opinion. That is, that, is, that is an opinion based on everything that's been reported. We lost million, millions of people were canceled out of their insurance. Fewer than the estimated four to five million who were canceled out have signed up a that's new. Actually, that's actually facts, so, Congressman. i got to back so, up on that. No, now, no, no, no. we've got a few more months to, know, to, to continue to sign up, but, but right now... There are fewer, because of all the cancellations, fewer people insured through insurance that they've purchased. We've got a lot of new Medicaid people, but who's not going to sign up for free health care? Yeah, no, and and but, by the way, we've sat on to this. There's a bunch of other problems. But we've sat on to what you were saying, though. I mean, Congressman Allen, remember, the president actually came out and extended the deadline twice for people to sign up for Affordable Care Act uh, medical insurance base through their exchanges or through uh, the federal exchange because of the fact that the numbers had dwindled, the numbers that were nowhere near. And when we went into January 1st, 2014, the numbers came out is there are less people insured in 2014 than there were in 2013. So, well, so far and, this and year. So far this year. There's a lot year, more to is, happen. This is what? This is January 7th. Seven. Seven. And, and you're talking about you're comparing 13 with 14? Come on. What do you mean, come on? The whole idea is we're going to add a lot of new people. We're going to sign them all up. We canceled, we canceled millions of policies, and we've only added about 2 million people, and about 800,000 from the state exchanges and about 1.2 million from the federal exchange. So we're behind now. That was never expected or contemplated. Now, more people are going to be signing up. We still don't know who these people are who are signing up. We know that people who couldn't get insurance, they were waiting in line. They, were, they didn't care how many hours that they had to wait. So we know that a lot of sick people with pre-existing conditions have signed up. There's no evidence Bob that Lyons. healthy people have been March signing up. March 1st is the, is the date. And my guess is that they will have a lot, they will have less people signed up than they want, and they will have hugely fewer young invincibles that they absolutely have to have. 2.7 million is what they have estimated they have. I'll make you a bet today they don't have 300,000. Who are you betting? You. Well. <laughs> <laughs> He's not betting me, Congressman Al. If I were to bet you yeah. a bottle of wine oh, and good. I lost, I'd pay you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I already paid you. <laughs> <laughs> man. What the hell? <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> I paid him. I gave him a bottle. One. Screw you, old man. I am paid the other. I paid him. Get big. You'll get big. Yeah. I owed a little something myself. Yeah. 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 Are you? Uh, we'll talk about that off there. Hey, um, but when, when we look at when we look at uh, 2014, we're gonna we're gonna come off this because obviously we're gonna be monitoring what's happening in Washington. Still on the air, Bob. Still on the air, boss. So uh, one of the things that we are gonna do is big things are happening for backroom politics. Last year. 
according to uh, Blog Talk Radio, our, our, our radio affiliate network, uh, we had 145 listeners listen to Backroom Politics last year. 145,000. 145,000. 145,000 listeners listen to Backroom Politics. I could believe the person. Oh, shut up. You're just cynical. We had 145,000 listeners check into Backroom Politics at some point during 2013, which is a huge year for us. That was a civil 07. Oh, go away. You're, I'm still mad at you for the wine deal. The reality is that uh, big things for big things are expected for backroom politics this year in 2014. So, so for all of our supporters, we thank you very much for sticking with us over the past three years and the past 160 shows. Uh, we're going to continue on doing what we do, but big things are going to happen, and we're excited about it, and you'll see them, and we'll announce them as they're coming up. Uh, but one of the things I'm going to mention for 2014 is my favorite segment. This is our first 2014 Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, innuendo, and buzz. However, there is a new rule in 2014. You cannot talk about anything that hasn't happened in the past 48 hours or the past week. Anything from 1948 is out. Anything from 1967 is out. 1988, done. Have a nice time, Carl. We'll see you. Carl, I am dropping the hammer on this we kid. Cannot, we cannot lose Carl. If I hear, no. if I yeah, no, this no. is, this, we no, I'm putting the onus on you. The, the whole idea of telling me a story was so we could get the news, get the scoop, get, you know, some of the buzz that's going on. We don't care what happened in 1971, other than the fact that I was a year old. So, anyway, that uh, uh, being the... Hey, we don't care about that either. Yeah, apparently, neither does 145,000 other listeners. So, that being the case... We're going to start off 2014. <laughs> Congressman Al, tell me a story. I never have a story. Okay, then you're done for right now. We'll come back to you, Congressman wow. Al. Thank you. I usually pick up yeah, one. Yeah, he usually picks up on something. Yeah. Bob Hines, 2014, kicks us off. Tell me a story. I think the, the biggest story this year is going to be whether the, in, in the election process, whether the Republicans are smart enough to nominate winnable candidates because there is going to be so much unhappiness about Obamacare that it's going to be an opportunity for Republicans to take control of the Senate and enlarge their margin in the House. If they are smart enough to do so, which I am not sure they are, because I am always concerned that some of these states are going to have conventions where only the hot button people come and they nominate the most conservative people possible rather than people who can appeal to a broad range of voters. I'm hoping they will be smart enough to get the best possible candidates because this, I see Obamacare as being the gift that keeps on giving because it is so poorly structured. There's going to be serious problems going down the line and I think if we are smart and nominate good candidates, we have a very good chance to take over the Senate by a very narrow margin, a larger margin in the House, and then be in a position to get some things done working with the President. Okay, good story. Denise Kreft, tell me a story. Sexual assault in the military. I'm testifying tomorrow before a Department of Defense uh, panel. This panel was created by the last National Defense Authorization Act. The panel's not open to the public. The Department of Defense is refusing to open it to the public. In fact, they're claiming that they can't do so under the Federal Advisory Committee Act. Now, as former chief counsel, I can tell you that if I wanted a legal opinion that said that the sky was pink, I could have had a legal opinion saying the sky was pink. 
So clearly, somebody in the Defense Department doesn't want to hear from a panel of ten individuals, including several two- and three-star generals and admirals, who are going to be speaking out in support of Senator Gillibrand. So my question to the Department of Defense is if you are truly serious, as General Odierno said today at the National Press Club, about reforming the military and creating a culture that uh, includes everybody, both men and women, then why aren't you opening the panel so that the public can hear those of us who wore the uniform and those of us who support Senator Gillibrand? Interesting story. Keep an eye on that. Uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, the, the, the Democrats would love to beat Mitch McConnell, the, uh, the Senate Republican leader, the, the old hand, the old timer, the, the, the very clever and smart guy. The uh, guy with they, a wonderful person. Who they love to vilify. Um, and, uh, and they're counting on a, on a woman named Allison Grimes, uh, an old uh, Kentucky family. Uh, but, uh, but keep an eye on an accusation that just has emerged in Kentucky that people close to her, not Grimes herself, have engaged in something like the people around the D.C. mayor did when they, oh. wanted, when they wanted to get rid of another candidate who was perceived to be in, in uh, Ms. Grimes' way and said, if you step aside, we can help you and take care of you. So keep your eye on that one because it, it, it she's, she's a reasonably attractive yep. candidate, but anything like that, if it, if it really sticks. Um, uh, would be would be devastating. The, the, the last thing to keep your eye on this year is is Syria. We've talked about it before. It's it's it, we think we, we think we're cold right now in winter. Um, uh, think about families who have been displaced from their homes uh, in Syria. It's only 28 Syria, degrees in Damascus. It's seven here in and around Syria. Um, this uh, this continues to be the the major candidate for this administration's major humanitarian failure. Wow. Good call. Carl Tuvin. <clears throat> well. Tell me a story. I, I'm going to tell a story about Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, does that. When she was three wait, years wait, old. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this, is this is it does recent? That, does that suffice because she's. 66 years old. Am I okay to, to tell that story? <laughs> anyway, uh, there have been a lot of articles, a lot of talk about Hillary, Hillary Rodham Clinton and the presidency. She even had a group from the uh, Dewey Square group brief her on um, what is happening in polls and, and all. They've even had fights between two political action committees uh, and what they were doing uh, in order to promote her. I will make a prediction that, and she said a few weeks ago, that I will tell you next year, which is now, 2014, because she said it in 2013, that whether I am going to run for president or not. And I'm going to give her some leverage. I think it's going to be between June and November, where she will tell the country uh, of her wishes, either her intentions either to run Wow! Now you see, Carl. What she that do? Was, that was a good story. No, no, that was a good story. I, I'll give him that one. I mean, that I was know. a nothing. That was a nothing. Wait a minute. You know what he's talking he about? He said she said she's going to tell us this year, and he said it'll be no, the no, latter no. half of the year. We want to know what she's going to say. 
Oh, I'm going to tell you what she's going to say. There's no way in hell she's running. Anyway, that being the case, and they also, by the way, our friends at Politico gave us the new term, Clinton land. <laughs> Clinton land. I don't want to live in Clinton land again. So anyway, uh, big things happening in New York City right now. ABC News Online, ironically, broke a story just this morning about fraud against the 9-11 Health and Retirement uh, uh, Fund where they have arrested, as of today, 110 first responders, both NYPD, NYEMS, and FDNY. It is a huge black eye on these established organizations. I've talked to a couple of sources up in New York City. They're telling me the number could be as high as 250 retired police officers, firefighters, and EMS responders that could be implicated in huge insurance and medical retirement fraud. It is something that is absolutely devastating to the first responder community right now. Congressman Al. I uh, think that the orgasmic delight that Republicans are taking uh, in the current problems with uh, Obamacare are going to be sorely disappointed if they in fact make that the centerpiece of their 19 of uh, their 2014 race. I think uh, it's ultimately going to be a very popular program. Wow, very good. Orgasmic. Good. Orgasmic delight. being a good word. Thanks for orgasmic. that one, Al. Al knows a lot about orgasmic delight. I, I don't want to know. I don't stop. 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 It's the first show of the damn year. Stop. God, I wish you were. Stop. You guys want to do this in December? Be my guest. Screw this noise. We're a professional journalistic organization, damn it. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krapp, Alan Moore, Carl Thuman, I am your somewhat humbled moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next week. Next week we have a special guest. Bob, you want to announce who our guest is going to be? Uh, next week our guest is going to be the former chairman of the uh, Ways and Means Committee, Bob Livingston. Yay! We can talk about tax reform. We'll talk appropriations. No, he was Ways and Means. He was Ways and No, you're. No, he was appropriations. No, no, no. no, no. Yes, appropriations. I'm sorry, appropriations. And he is going to be here. And uh, he is. uh, He probably knows as much about the intricacies of. What's going on on the Capitol Hill as anybody possibly could. Well, we're looking forward to having the chairman on next week. He was a ranking member on a subcommittee I served as chairman on, and he's a good guy. Okay, good. He'll be a very uh, informative and very wise and very, uh, he'll he'll have a lot to say. Yeah. He'll be here for the whole two hours. So we're kicking off 2014 with a big swing. That's going to be fantastic. So uh, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Uh, We will be here next Tuesday, as we are every Tuesday, live from Shelley's back room. Will we have any people staring at us through the window here? I'm closing the show. Oh, my God, you look lovely. Are you kidding me? We want more. I'm closing the show. Let me close the show, and then you can talk. She was wonderful. Let me talk. I just want the public to know that we're sitting in a bar room window. Al, focus. Focus on me. Here, come back to me, bro. Put that finger down. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Isn't this the place to be to hear all kinds of crazy people talking about wonderful things you want to know about? Goodbye, Bob. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great week. Bye.